Welcome to First Christian Church. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us today. And uh, I've met some newcomers today already, and I'm very glad if you're a guest that you're part of what we're doing here today. To those who are in the East Auditorium, we're very glad you're here as well. And I'd invite everybody to take a Bible, please. And in the East Auditorium, if you don't have one, there's some folk moving around the auditorium there to pass them out right now. Here in the West, if you don't have it on your smartphone or didn't bring one with you, there's one on the pew rack in front of you. In both spaces, if you'd like to take that home as our gift to you, we'd be very glad if you'd do that, please. While you're looking for Mark chapter 10 is where we'll be reading today. Um, perhaps you know the name Tim Tebow, a very famous college football player. In 2007, more than 10 years ago now, as a sophomore in college while playing for Florida, he was the first sophomore to ever win the Heisman Trophy uh, foot, uh, quarterback. He had a very triumphant career in college, but has struggled to find his place in the NFL, played for a few teams here and there, and um, he's a strong Christian, known for his humility, in the midst of a very high profile, and uh, some of have watched him from afar, particularly those of us of people of faith, and we kind of decried the fact that he can't ever seem to get a decent break in the NFL for any number of reasons, and probably if you're like me, I just like the fact that he just doesn't seem to get the recognition that he should get, if you will, and uh, enough said, if you will. He now makes a living as a TV broadcaster analyzing college football games, except, except when he's playing professional baseball. Maybe you're aware that last season, during baseball season, he played in Florida for a Class A team of the New York Mets, hoping to make it to the big leagues. And his teammates there absolutely love him. They love the extra large size crowds that come when Tebow shows up, when he's playing whatever field they're going to be in. The crowds go way, they're way larger than normal, so his teammates like that. And they love particularly the advice he gives to them regarding their fantasy football league online. I mean, think about it. You've got one of the best analysts in the country in the locker room with you in the, in the clubhouse and giving you all kinds of information. You'd like it too. Um, there's some people who have been paying attention, some writers across the country about this. One fellow is Matt Ehalt. He's written an article called Tebow's Tim Teammates Ex Respect His Work Ethic, Appreciate His Fantasy Football Advice, and uh, Particularly Appreciate His Humility. He grew up in a strong Christian home in a missionary home in Asia. And uh, this is what Elhart says about it. Those who shared clubhouses with Tebow were complimentary of the outfielder and enjoyed the memorable experience it provided for them. The consensus amongst, consensus amongst those who play with Tebow, both prospects and established major leaguers alike, they say is a hard worker and a genuinely nice person. He doesn't reek of arrogance or try to big-time his teammates. He's just one of the guys trying to make the major leagues perhaps more famous than the rest of everybody else. One of his teammates said, I, I don't think he's got a rock, rock star mentality. He rides the bus like the rest of us. He's not chartering planes across the state or anything. He's probably the most famous minor league baseball player, but he's like a normal teammate. Apparently, a fairly humble and admirable guy. It's a good trait, right, isn't it, to be a, a person who can take who you are and your strengths and your weaknesses and kind of hold it all in balance and be, um, be humble. It's a trait that warrants some examination, particularly if you're a Christian, uh, particularly in these days of self-promotion, 
Uh, we're we're going to look at two guys in the book of Mark today who tried to do some self-promotion. Two guys by the name of James and John. And what we're doing is we're closing out this sermon series that's entitled Misunderstood, Jesus According to Mark. And throughout the series, we've looked at people who misunderstood Jesus' ministry and his mission. You've got the crowds around him. They wanted one thing. You've got the religious leaders wanted another thing. And in the case of today, we're going to look at some of his disciples who they had some expectations of what should be taking place. And um, when we read Mark chapter 10 here today, it is in the days leading up to what we've celebrated today, Palm Sunday. So it's in the right in this period in Jesus' ministry, a week or so before the resurrection. As a matter of fact, um, we're going to read about just, there's this sense of anticipation in the group leading towards what we will know as Easter in the long run. But and I, I do want to remind you, use those invitations for Easter this week, bring people next weekend. And I particularly want to emphasize, if I can, um, next Friday evening. I know Josh has already mentioned it, but can I just kind of come behind that and say, last year on Good Friday, we had a big crowd and we did two services and so much so that this year we went to three services. They're all alike. And uh, I love Easter. I love the celebration of the resurrection. But may I point out that the resurrection doesn't occur unless you go through Good Friday. So it'd be, it's a wise thing for Christians to say, I'm going to remember not only Jesus' triumphal entry and not only the resurrection, but I'm going to take some time to reflect on what it means that Jesus died for me. So join us on Good Friday. Choose one of the services and we're going to have some quiet I know what's scheduled for the service already, what our creative team put together. You won't want to miss it, all right? But for now, let's read Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so these are one of the four original disciples, of, two of the four original disciples, okay? They came to Jesus and teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's pretty, um, pretty audacious. Hey, son of God, whatever we ask, you need to do it. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus comes back. Well, I don't think you really know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus is referring the cup is, of course, his death, the baptism, he's going to be buried. Can you manage this? And they said, yeah, we can do that. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now they've got 10 men traveling with Jesus, all right? 12, pardon me, 12 men traveling with Jesus, 10 of who have now just heard these two say, we want, we want the place, you know, we want to be in position of authority. And when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, okay, in light of all this conversation together, be mindful of this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That may be the way it's done around, around you know, round and roundabout, if you will, but not so with you. You've been supposed to have been listening to me and that everything is going to be turned upside down with this kingdom of God. Instead, you don't get to lord it over anybody. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man, even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you need to be aware that this is taking place on their way to Palm Sunday. Look back to verse 32. They've made the turn. They are on their way to Jerusalem, right? This is, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 11, if you look there, you see they are arriving in Jerusalem. So this is, like I said, right in this, the, we are right at that time where these, this is taking place. And I guess what is going on is the disciples know they've moved toward, heading toward Jerusalem, and they know there's sort of some significant turn of events is about to take place. And for James and John, they're going, well, now's the time to make our mark. Now's the time to secure our place in the upcoming administration. We read this passage about humility and about servanthood. And in the midst of that, James and John come off looking rather ridiculous. They've obviously misunderstood what's taking place as Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. They want a kingdom. They want a part. They want an important part in that kingdom. They want a place in the, if you will, we'd put it these days. They want a place in the new national cabinet. They want a seat at the big boys table. And we have the reference of hindsight. And we go, how could you miss it? For so many months leading up to this, you've been with Jesus day and night. So many countless towns, you've been on tour with him. There's been all the packing and unpacking. You've had all these conversations. You've had all these miracles. You've had countless teachings. And ugh, months earlier, James and John particularly, Two of the original four, if you will, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were the first four disciples. They were there at the very, very beginning, back in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus has all the crowd gather around him on the Sermon on the Mount. They'd heard, but seems to have forgotten, they've forgotten, they'd heard that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Surely, surely they didn't think, well, Maybe the meek will inherit the earth, yeah, and perhaps the poor in spirit will get the kingdom of God, but for now, it's only the self-promoting who are going to get a seat at the right and left hand of Jesus. Were they thinking that? Apparently so. Why did Mark bring this up? I mean, Mark is writing these, this biography of Jesus. Why is this put in this version of the biography. When I say biography, we know we have four Gospels. We call them Gospels, but they are the stories. Four different authors write about who, what happened when Jesus was alive. And two of the Gospels, two of the biographies, are written by disciples, people who followed Jesus when he was alive, and two were not. For example, you've got the first Gospel of Scripture, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. But then you get Mark, the book we're reading from, and Mark was not an original disciple. As a matter of fact, we think that maybe his parents were converts to Jesus' ministry. And there's probably a, a reference where, in the book of Mark, where he puts himself in the story as a young adolescent, a young teenage boy, 12, 13, 14 years of age. So he, he writes Mark some years later by going back and saying, hey, what happened, mom and dad, to all these situations? And they get Luke. Luke comes along many years later. After Jesus' ministry, after he dies, after he's buried, after he rises again, after he goes to heaven, after the church is established, he says, literally, 
I went back and I spoke to all the eyewitnesses. And we, we think that he may not have even been Jewish. It's years later that Luke comes along. And then you get the fourth gospel, John, who is one of the guys. This, this, this story about James and John, John is one of the guys, okay? And it's interesting. If you look at those four biographies, Matthew tells the story. Mark tells the story. Luke tells the story. He just doesn't say who the disciples are. So if you put it this way, Matthew throws James and John under the bus. Mark throws them under the bus. Luke throws them under the bus, but he just doesn't tell who it is. And then John, what do you think he does with the story? Skips it all together. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Not a mention. He skips the whole matter. He, he's had a painful lesson in humility. And if I was writing and I was the bad guy, if I was the silly guy, the guy that looked ridiculous, I'd probably skip it too. And I kind of like this, actually. It's good for me to know that this stalwart of the faith, John, as he wrote down all that he remembered, he chose to just, well, I'm going to skip over my shortcomings. There are some things about you and your shortcomings. There are shortcomings in my life that I'd like to forget. For example, you didn't think I was going to tell you, did you? No. I got this, that if John... John the Apostle, the guy who wrote Revelation, okay? The guy that Scripture calls the Jesus' most beloved disciple, the guy who actually did sit next to Jesus at the Last Supper, if he says, I don't want to bring it up, then I don't bring it up in my... Here's what I know. When it comes to these matters, there's grace. You don't have to live in your errors of yesterday. You don't have to keep reminding yourself of them. After all... Apparently, in the kingdom of God, some of your best friends, your Matthew, Mark, and Luke will tell you about them from time to time and remind you anyway. So, whatever happened, it was a mistake. In grace that's found in Jesus Christ, let it go. Now, in the moment, we are aware that the disciples are quite distraught. And I can imagine them saying to James and John, Hey, you guys, what's with this? Here we've been together all these months. What gives you the right to ask for a pl place of position and authority? What gives you the right to self-promote? I wonder about this idea of self-promotion in the days of selfie photos and social media. I mean, it's one thing to post photos of, um, you know, great moments in the family life of joy. It's one thing to use media to apply for a job or, if you will, to uh, let people know what we do, but I'm wondering about the validity and the wisdom of um, our, our celebrity following from time to time. Is it good for whatever celebrities out there to make millions from Twitter accounts and Snapchat and Instagram posts, and we all buy into it, and it's simply them showing us how well they can take selfies with pouty lips? Look at me. I'm going, I'll take I want to. What's with that? So here's something else I have a question about. Collectively for us as a congregation, where's the line between self-promotion for our sake or for our sake versus publicity for the sake of people coming to know Jesus Christ? 
Because there are times, I have to tell you, friends, when I don't always know of the place and the line between marketing and ego. Hmm. Now, this is not, this idea of selfie promotion is not new to this culture, our culture, just because Facebook came along. I mean, there are lots of stories in Scripture. For example, if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, the Scriptures tell us that the human population had exploded and that uh, there were so many people that nobody, n- nobody could know everyone every- anymore. And there was a concern that, man, we just, there's so many people. How are we going to differentiate between people? And so in Genesis chapter 11, they came up with the responses. How to make certain, how we're going to, well, you, here's how it goes. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And let's build that city in the very center of it. Let's put a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? Why are we going to do this? Not to serve anyone. Not to do good things. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Hmm. And if you know that story, God wasn't pleased. The tower came tumbling down. And there, there desire to be self-reliant and to promote themselves created a great problem. Does that mean we can't do that? Well, self-reliance may be the problem. On the one hand, as people, as humans made in the image of God, there are certain characteristics that we have that are really important, that are really strong. We are designed by God as humans to be healthy and to be strong and to be powerful and to be industrious and to be creative and to be people who are loving and people who who are also in the midst of that, we are also called to be servants of the Most High God. We are never created to serve ourselves. And the people of Genesis 11 wanted a name for themselves that others would recognize. They wanted some individualism. James and John wanted a position of authority, a place of importance. And we want selfie recognition. And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Jesus says, that's not the way you do it. As a matter of fact, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And it's very ironical to me that in this age when people want all this individualism and all this self-promotion and that the best way to do that is to be different than everybody else. And you know how you could be different than anybody else? Choose servanthood instead of self-promotion. And so to that end, your mission, should you choose it, it's a mission that might be impossible at times. Your mission, should you choose it, is to promote the good and honorable in others. Your mission, should you choose it, is to serve, Scripture says, long before you are served. That's That's gonna play out today when you leave here. If you go to a restaurant here in town, you're gonna say you walk in the door and you've been there before, so they know who you are. How are the waiters and waitresses? Oh, they're not called that anymore, are they? What are they called? Servers. Are they gonna be pleased that you show up? Oh, you know, here comes the so-and-so family, or here comes so-and-so who comes in here regularly because are you known as somebody who barks orders? Are you their client? Or are you their commanding officer? There's a difference, right? There's also a difference between blind ambition, the James John style of ambition, versus God's kingdom-centered living. 
What do you mean, Pastor? Are you saying I can't be ambitious? No, not at all. There are tall tasks in front of you this week that need your attention. And there are tall tasks that's going to take your attention that are going to have to last. And your attention is going to be there for years. I mean, think about Adam. Genesis tells us that he was told by God, name all the animals. Think about that. That's a task that required dedication and focus, supported by, it had, there had to be this really ambitious, goal-oriented, administrative plan that was going to take years to develop. So you've got your plan in place. You want to earn your first million dollars and have it in the bank by the time you're 40? Great. No, you say, well, that's not fast enough for me. I want a million dollars in the bank by the time I'm 30. Great. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as your goals... And your $1 million, or your perhaps $10 million, if that's your goal, or perhaps you just want to have $52.63 in the bank, whatever it is that you have in the bank, will it point people to an understanding of how Jesus Christ died to bring them into a tangible relationship with God Almighty, leading them to heaven? See, as a, as a congregation, we have to face the same question. We are a congregation that worships about 1,200 people a weekend. Is it appropriate to have a goal that we're going to be a congregation of 2,000 people a weekend sometime in the future? That's great. As long as our goals and programs are designed to bring people into a tangible relationship with God, leading them to life in heaven and causing them to shun hell. See, it's not that you don't get to have those ambitions. You don't get to say, well, I'm just going to back off and be lazy. No. Servanthood is not some quiet reluctance to engage. There's a difference between God-centered quietness and humility versus laziness. And the Bible doesn't condone laziness. There are plenty of stories throughout Scripture where people stepped up to the plate. I mean, they swung hard. Abram took the trip of a lifetime to go to a place where the great nation of Israel would be built and born. Moses few generations later, took on the endeavor of a lifetime. He's going to see emancipation for a million people, leading them from slavery to freedom. They've been in slavery for 400 years, and he said, we're going to turn that around. Joshua, next generation down. He took on the challenge of a lifetime to settle a nomadic nation in a land that was filled with milk and honey. Some generations later, David... David took on the wars of a lifetime to establish his nation as the military, economic, and spiritual powerhouse of the world some 3,000 years ago. You go a few more generations, you get to Elijah. He took on the showdown of a lifetime to, um, to show, if you will, God's supremacy in a battle of wits and courage. One man versus 400 priests of the idolatrous god Baal. Get to the New Testament. Paul. Put to, Paul took on the mission of a lifetime to establish churches all across the Mediterranean. The, the first missionary the church ever had. We didn't have a job description that said missionary in those days. And he took it on. You're sitting in pews today or in chairs today because of what he did. Well, think about Jesus. Had to have some ambition, right? He took on the task of eternity. He defeated illness and death and sin and the personification of evil in his life, death, and ministry. What? As a servant. So the Bible doesn't discourage ambition. You need, we, we need to walk from this place today and say, man, we're going to take on all of life. And we're going to take it on with great gusto. 
but how are we going to do it? Well, the Bible gives us an antidote, an injection, if you will, to combat unbridled self-promotion and blind ambition. And what's the antidote? Choose the same life foundation as Jesus Christ chose. Scripture puts it this way. In humility, start there. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the mind, same mindset as Jesus Christ. So how did Je- what was Jesus Christ's framework? What was his worldview? Well, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some of you may have heard this language. He didn't consider something, um, that, that equality with God something to be held onto, to be grasped. Rather, he let his hands go. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He left heaven, took on the image of humanity, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I gotta tell you, friends, there's a lot of ambition there. There's a big task. I'm gonna take on evil. But I see no attitude of expectation or entitlement or self-promotion in the passage. How do we get that injected in our arms? Well, it comes down to our expectations, to what we feel we are entitled to experience from others. For example, those of you who are young people, say, for the sake of discussion today, under 35, and someone's going, man, I'm 36, I mean, I'm not yet. Well, just say, young people, starting out your careers, okay? Do you carry an attitude of expectation? saying, hey, I've got my whole life in front of me. Give me a leg up, and I want my leg up now. I would respond to that by saying, have you ever noticed that Jesus had to wait until he was 30 before he even started his career? Think about this. This is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, who knows all things, says, well, I better wait till I'm 30. And there's something interesting about his career. It only lasted a very brief while. Be careful what you hope for. Right? Or those of you who are middle life people. Do you carry an attitude of expectation? Hey, how I get ahead now is going to impact my retirement. And don't expect me to be a servant around because those all around me are cutthroat. Well, I would say retirement planning and preparation are all good and appropriate. As long as servanthood is your life method now and your anticipated plan once you do retire. Or those who are older life people. Do you carry an attitude of expectation? Hey, I've done my fair share. I bought this. I paid for this. I have took on this task. I built this. I saved that. Now it's my turn. Now, friends, the Bible is very clear that those of us who are not old, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to provide care and sustenance and love to those who are ahead of us in years. But the Bible does not give credence whatsoever. There is no credence whatsoever to an entitlement mentality, regardless of a person's age or life position. See, I'm figuring this out. I'm figuring this out. Humility... It's a lifelong endeavor. It's not something you learn once and check off and say, done. It's kind of arrogant to say that, isn't it? In and of itself. I mean, it's a lifelong learning curve that seems pretty steep at times, and we have to learn it over and over again. And 
this came home to me really in kind of a humorous way to some extent, uh, but still nonetheless in a somewhat potent way in just recent weeks. Perhaps you're aware that just today, now this sermon has been planned for a long time. As a matter of fact, I wrote it 10 days ago. And just today though, the Herald and Review published this. Do you, are you aware that the Herald and Review holds these popularity contests each spring? You familiar with what I'm talking about? They invite their readers to vote for the best this or that, the best restaurant, you know, the best Mexican restaurant, the best barbecue restaurant, or the best veterinarian, the best florist, you know, uh, the best this or that, the best shoe repair place, and so forth. And there's even a category, and it's been in play for a long time now, for the best church, and they've recently added the best pastor. And the paper gives out certificates ahead of time to the winners so they know to look for their name in the paper come spring, namely this weekend. And they give out certificates to the number one, the number two, and the number three. And in all honesty, it's been going on for a long time and we've, they invite you to participate and to you know, run a campaign and everything. And so... I've always kind of pushed away from this. Uh, it, it seems odd. You know, here we are, supposed to be the people of God, humble and so forth and so on. So I, the whole thing is weird to me. Is it right that in some ways the churches are being pitted against one another and um, shooting to be recognized just is weird, right? I know, uh, it's just, it's, it doesn't seem appropriate for who we are as a congregation. I'm not speaking to other congregations. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm just saying, for me, for us, it felt like, let's just let that whole thing pass. And we'll be just calm about it. And I've been good with it for years, until a few weeks ago. I got to the office the other day, like this is about three weeks ago now. And I learned that we got two awards from the paper. Okay. So I go, and they say, Wayne, the awards have arrived from the paper. And so I go in the office, and there's the first big certificate like this. Best church in town, number three. What do you mean we're the third best church in the town? <laughs> what? Who's number one? Who's, who's better than us? And what's with this? We are the runner-up to the runner-up? That doesn't feel right. And so... I'm thinking, oh, no, it's all right, it's all right, Wayne, it's all right, don't worry about it. So I put that certificate in the round file. I thought, we're not going to pay attention to this. And then the next certificate was laying underneath it. Who's the best pastor in town? Not Wayne Kent. <laughs> Number three again. Runner-up to the runner-up. Not even number two, and I'm not even number one. What's with that? I'm the Tim Tebow of Central Illinois. Remember that guy? The guy who never gets the credit. What are we, the Tim Tebow of Central Illinois when it comes to church life? I wish we'd been number four. We would never have known. Am I weird? No, I don't think so. It's real life, right? Humility, who asked for it? I didn't. James and John didn't. But apparently Jesus expects it of us. So, in light of that, I want you to hear this very clearly. Beloved, 
It is a pleasure for our church to serve this community. Always. And <laughs> it's a pleasure for me to serve you, even if you don't like me. Because <laughs> like you, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to serve in the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who frankly didn't get recognition for his servanthood, but died on a cross for it. And in that regard, I'm trying to forego all I can, mimicking James and John. In fact, I would anticipate there's a day coming, it's my plan, that there's a day coming when I will see Jesus Christ face to face. And I'm look, not looking for a place at the table of the cabinet. It's not my role. When I see Jesus Christ face to face, I can't be someone who says, what's my part? What posture, and I, I won't have a lot to say, really. Uh, I'll have a, a posture to take. I think it's gonna be this. Don't you reckon? rather than saying, can I have this or that? As a matter of fact, I, if, if there's space and if the setting warrants it, I don't even know if this is appropriate. I think if I see Jesus face to face, I pray that I'll respond throughout all of my life in preparation for that day this way. Would you pray with me, please? God, you sent your son, Jesus Christ. He didn't hold on to his divinity. He took on humanity. Scripture tells us that he was very nature God. And that he didn't consider equality with God to be something to be grasped. But instead he humbled himself and became like a servant. And giving up his divinity, he took on the nature of a servant in the form of human likeness. And he became a man humbled himself to the cross, even death on a cross. We can hardly wait for Easter, God. But between now and then, there's Good Friday. There's the reminder of Jesus Christ's humility. There's the call of Scripture for us to follow him. We have ambitions, we have goals, God. We have ways in which we need to, we need the community to know of our, our jobs and our tasks and the ways in which we've got to make money and all that sort of stuff. And God, most of all, in everything we do, to tomorrow, and then long-term in those goals. 
May we live in a way that mimics Jesus Christ. May we be the tangible touch of Jesus Christ in the lives of people. And in this community always we pray. In Christ's name.